I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans 10 and we come to this incredibly rich passage. I, my heart has been so encouraged by this particular study this week and I rejoice to get to share with you this morning. As Paul had said at the end of verse 15 in Romans chapter 10, these wonderful words, it says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The gospel message that we have is a gospel that is so encouraging, so profound, so rich. The power of the gospel is able to take one's life that is in complete ruin and restore it to complete usefulness. A life that was filled with utter despair, utter hopelessness, utter destruction can be turned around in an instant because of the message of Jesus Christ and rebuilt in such a glorious way that one would look upon that individual and never even believe what used to be. Transformation is the power demonstrated in the gospel. Reconciliation of sinful man to God is the promise of the gospel. The love of God is the glory of the gospel. The demonstration of Jesus Christ and the riches of his glory are the marvels of the gospel. This marvelous message given to us by God, we get to go and to proclaim to others, and we rejoice in it. We rejoice in this message because this message is what brought us hope. It is this message that brought us encouragement. It's this message that renews us and energizes us each and every day. When we're facing difficulties, when we're in the burdens of life, when, when pressures are coming upon us, it's the gospel that recenters us. The gospel that reminds us of why we're in the challenges we're facing each and every day. It, it, it sets our focus right. When we are facing difficulties in marriage, we are reminded of the truths of the gospel and what God has called us to do. When we're facing difficulties in this world, with there's hostility. It's the gospel that is reminding us of the importance of the message in our conduct. It's this glorious message we long to share. We long that our neighbors know it, our friends know it, our family know it. We long for everyone we interact with to know it because we know the benefits of God's gospel in our own lives. We know the joy it has brought. We know the peace that it brings. We know the love of God that it demonstrates. We know what God has done through this marvelous work. And so we are compelled within to share, compelled to proclaim it compelled to make it known so that all would receive the riches of God's promises. But while we head out and we share this marvelous good news, not everyone responds favorably. Sometimes there's open hostility. There's pushback. There's rejection. There's resistance. There's unwillingness to hear, unwillingness to think through it, unwillingness to come under it, and we are a bit stunned at that. What's going on? Why wouldn't you receive something that is so important, so necessary, so critical, so valuable, that one would sell everything to gain it? They would give up everything to acquire this. 
one would lay down his own life that they may have this, why wouldn't you do the exact same thing? Why wouldn't you give it up all, give up all things? Why wouldn't you turn from that which is destroying you to that which would rebuild you and grow you and transform your life? That which would bring peace and joy. Why wouldn't you see the beauty of this good news? Why wouldn't you see it for how we see it? It's rich and it's powerful. There's rejection. And we struggle to reconcile and understand that rejection. We're told, well, it's you. You got it wrong. If you gave a better message, they would receive it. We're told it's the message itself. It's too complex. It's too difficult to understand. We've got to change the message and make it simpler. I mean, people are used to building with blocks, so if you just make it real simple, like little building blocks, then they can understand it and they'll receive. Maybe we just haven't effectively gathered enough people together to get everyone in a show of force to make this clear. We're doing something wrong. That's a tendency in our own heart in those moments when, when we bring this beautiful, glorious, rich message to somebody thinking they have to receive this and they reject the temptation of the heart is maybe I did it. Maybe I messed up. Maybe I didn't get it right. Trying to think of a way to illustrate this sermon this morning, I went back to some sermon illustration books. Yes, they make those. And, uh, and I found this illustration, and I was stunned by it because it completely misses the point. <laughs> completely just gets it wrong. So I want to read it to you, because it's good. <laughs> but I want to show you from this text why they ultimately get it wrong. But then you also understand, this is why I hate illustrations. Here you go. Here it is. Written in 2015 in a 300 illustrations for preachers book. Here's what he says. Amazon is always searching for better and faster ways to deliver products to customers. Never satisfied with the status quo, Amazon has tried several alternatives to UPS and FedEx. The company has asked the Federal Aviation Administration for permission to deliver packages via aerial drones. In November 2014, they were testing cab drivers for delivery in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Believers can learn from Amazon's dedication. We need to be continually looking for new and different ways to make the greatest delivery of all, the gospel. Like Paul, we should have no bounds on preaching the good news. And you hear that, it's like, that's right. That's so wonderful. We just got a wrong delivery method. If we got the better delivery method, we would be able to reach the world. Drones. And attach the gospel to drones. We will follow Amazon's packaging delivery system and we will put the gospel on drones and send it out there. And we'll all learn to fly drones. And we'll get the gospel out. Obviously, I'd take their idea and stretch it, but here's the point. Is the problem really a delivery problem? Is it really that we haven't effectively used the mediums out there? We haven't created a gospel viral video to get it out there, or we haven't used the advancement of technology, therefore we're not getting it out there. So the problem's really with us, that we fail to use these delivery methods to effectively reach the world. Is that the case? 
Is it really that our message is too complex, too hard, unreasonable, we can't understand it? Is it really that's the problem? Or is the problem that maybe it hasn't gotten to everybody and so we just need to keep pushing out there and to get it to everybody? Because that's what we're being told. We're being told, you don't understand Gen X, that's why you can't reach them. You don't understand what millennials are thinking and so you're missing the boat. You don't understand Gen Z, you don't understand the next group. That's why you can't be effective, we're being told. You're out of date. You're missing the mark. Nobody wants to go to your parents' church. And on and on the list of accusations come. You're not innovating enough. You're not adapting enough. You're not moving and keeping up with the times. You're outmoded, outdated. You can't keep up. And so the message is ineffective and not powerful, unable to change. It's your fault, Christian. You need to change. You need to get off your studying of the Bible, get away from teaching all these truths, and adapt your message here so more people can hear and respond, and we can get back to the glory days where we were reaching the whole world with the gospel of God. We can reach them all. As if this generation is the first generation that has faced unbelief. As if we're the first group of gospel ministers to go out and somebody say, forget that. As if you and I are the first ones to ever face hostility and rejection in the heart of a hearer when we preach the gospel. That's why I don't buy that illustration or buy that message, because we're not the firsts. We're not the first ones to face hostility. We're not the first ones to have our message thrown right back in our face. We're not the first ones to have to hear somebody mock the message of truth. It's not a presentation problem. It's not the fact that we're not clear with the message. It's not a problem with our, our hearers out there that uh, we haven't reached them all. No, it's a much deeper problem than that. And I know that because that's what Paul draws our attention to in this passage. In light of preaching this marvelous and glorious gospel message, this message that is given to us, this message which Paul says that God commissioned us, he, we are sent ones. And because we are sent ones, we go out and preach. We proclaim. We make the message known. And as we preach, we proclaim. As we make the message known, people hear it. And when they hear that message proclaimed, they believe. And when they believe, they call out to God. This is God's work that is still happening today. In Act In an act of faith, we believe God's message to go out and be ambassadors, to be light in a dark world, to be salt in a tasteless world, to bring the message of God as an act of faith because we've been called out as his children to go out to be his holy nation, his royal priesthood. We're to go out and be his people in that we proclaim the gospel It's an act of obedience to what he has called us to do. And in doing that, 
this whole process unfolds. In our obedience to his calling, we preach, proclaim, make known. People hear, believe, and call upon the living God. But not everyone. Not everyone receives. Not everyone understands that message, and that's when our heart is tested. Maybe I need to change something. We're, we're tempted to think, maybe I've done something wrong. And then it cripples us and hinders us. That when someone doesn't respond, somebody we love so much, somebody we cared for doesn't respond to the gospel and, and we are tempted to turn the focus on us and think, maybe I've done something wrong in delivering this. And what happens? We lose heart. We grow, we grow weary in doing good. We begin to be influenced by the stubbornness of the rebellion in their own heart and begin to become doubtful ourselves. And I think it's in that context that this passage then, Romans ten sixteen through 21, becomes profoundly rich for us. Because Paul responds to three arguments. You can't see it in the English very well. But there's the Greek term Allah, which is the word but, the conjunction. You see it twice. You see it in English in verse 18 and verse 19, but I say, and then verse 19, but I say, but it's also there in verse 16. But, it's translated however in the New American Standard, but it is actually the exact same word, but. Three times, three different responses. If the gospel is so glorious, but what about this? But what about this? But what about this? Three different arguments. And why the arguments? Because man who is hostile to God wants an excuse for why he is not under accountability. Man who is obstinate, who is pushed, up, pushed away from God, who wants to live in his own freedom, who wants to be his own God, sitting on his own throne, pushes away from God and wants excuses. Various excuses for why he does not have to come under the gospel or how he might circumvent God's ways and slip in a different way. <laughs> yeah, you Christians, you went in, but... You had to give up everything, and you had to live under you know, the Word of God. And it, it, it was uh, difficult for you because you had to give up all these pleasures. But I could keep all those things. I'll just get in in a different way. I'm going to use the ignorance card. I just didn't know. And so I can escape in these other different ways to enter into heaven. And I don't have to go through that same path that you went through. And it's those escapes, those excuses, those little attempts for one to say that truth doesn't apply to me that Paul exposes in these three responses. You won't be able to escape. Here's why. Because, and he gives three points, as I said, three kind of arguments that the natural man might use to say this is why you should let me in, God. Yeah, okay, I don't line up with your righteousness. I can't get in, but there's some problems with the message. The first problem, it's the gospel's ineffective. It's just not powerful enough to save. So that's the first accusation. You see that in verses 16 and 17. 
The second one is, well, not everyone heard. Verse 18. It hasn't gotten to everybody. So I'm one of those people who lived out in the remotest jungle and never heard it, so I can get in because I am in the I never heard category. That's addressed in verse 18. The last one is in verse 19 and 20. Well, the gospel's unknowable. There's just not enough evidence. Just not enough details, not enough facts. There's not enough proofs to demonstrate the gospel is reliable. So that's why you should let me in. You just didn't give enough of the facts to prove. Three arguments that the heart may use to try to vindicate itself in its unbelief. And then three responses that Paul gives to unmask each one of those expressions of unbelief. It's a problem with the gospel's power, it's a problem with the gospel's delivery, or it's the problem with the gospel's evidence. And Paul is going to prove each one of those wrong. It's not a problem at all with the message. The problem is something somewhere else. Now, one more little detail to set up before we head into this text. So we need to understand Paul's purpose in this particular text. It's going to become very clear once we why we need to do this when we get to verse 18, but we need to set this up. What Paul is doing here is demonstrating the universal guilt of the unbeliever. He is demonstrating the universal guilt of those who have not embraced the gospel of God. I'll prove that. Let's just work our way through this, this text. The first argument... <clears throat> That may come up if you have this glorious, wonderful message that's such good news. The first question is then what he brings up. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? If faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of truth and the message has gone out, how come everyone hasn't believed? Look, there are all these people who have not believed. It must be a problem with the message. There must be a, a problem with the, the message delivered because it's not producing the effect you said it was to produce. If it's proclaimed and people hear it and in hearing they believe, yet there are people who are out there who don't believe, then it must mean the message is ineffectual. The message doesn't work. Isaiah has been, even Isaiah the prophet recognizes Lord, who has believed our report? Who has believed our message? We're just not preaching a powerful enough message. We're not preaching the kind of message that is going to change hearts. We're not preaching the kind of message that is going to produce believing. It's going to produce the calling out. So it's a problem with your message. You got your message all wrong. You need to change the message so you get it right. How many times have you heard that? How many times have you heard this very argument come out? Verse 16, it's a problem with the unbeliever. Uh, it's, a, it's a problem with our message because not everyone believes. If you just tweak the message, you would get the message in which you would have people respond to. Notice how Paul responds to it. Verse 17 is his response. So the accusation is the message isn't effective because not everyone is believing. And I love the, the brevity by which Paul responds here. Few words, he just simply states, so faith 
comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. He just immediately dismisses the argument. It's not a problem with the message. It's not a problem with the the message of God, the gospel of God. It's not a problem with the gospel at all. Unbelief in the heart of man is not evidence that the gospel is ineffective. Why? Because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's amazing. I love this. I love it because of, in the statement here, what Paul is doing. It's a real problem that people reject. It's a real problem that exists because we all have experientially, if we've been faithful to the word of God, gone out and proclaimed it and had people reject you and throw it back at you and you've left with this kind of what happened here as we try to communicate. There are those who are rejecting, even as Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? And instead of going on a long treatise justifying it, instead of going on to a theological discourse proving, he just simply reiterated the truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. This is how the truth works. You must hear. On hearing, you believe. You must hear what? You must hear the word of Christ. You hear the message of God. You hear his gospel and you believe. This is how God has ordained it to work. It's not an effectiveness of the gospel problem. That's why when others are coming along and telling me, oh, you, you've messed, we've got to change this because we can attract more coming this way. You know, the, the old adage you know, you, you attract more flies with honey than with vinegar. You've heard the natural reasoning where man has used to say, this is how we have to change it up. <clears throat> no, it's not a problem with the message because that's subtly what you're saying when you do that. You're saying the message is the problem. And yet, Paul here simply states, faith comes from hearing by the word of Christ. I must communicate the word of Christ. I must communicate the person and work of Jesus Christ. I must communicate the glories of Christ. That is what saves. It's not a power of the gospel problem. Okay. So if it's not a power of the gospel problem, what's the next logical conclusion? Maybe, if there, because there's unbelievers, that message just hasn't gotten to everybody. Maybe that's what the problem is, the next possible step. The message just hasn't spread to everybody so that all could hear. So yeah, the gospel is effective, it's powerful, it is able to save, but there's still unbelievers out there. They must be out there because the message just hasn't gotten to them. It hasn't spread out to them. That's why they are there. Notice what Paul says in the second argument. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Now, this is a profoundly wonderful and complex verse. You read it, and you're like, oh, that's pretty simple. No, actually, this is very complex. 
Because it almost appears that Paul is mixing his theological categories here. It appears in verse 18 that Paul is failing Theo 1. He is failing the bibliology section. He is failing his understanding of the doctrine of the scriptures. Because he is confusing general revelation with special revelation. Some have even concluded that. He, he just uh, you know, made a mistake here. And this is, again, why we can't trust the Bible, because Paul is making a mistake. Obviously, we reject that category. The other category that some have concluded, well, Paul has taken an intention of David with one idea, and he's just giving it a new meaning, a new understanding, so that he, so that he can take a passage and, and, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, give a whole new meaning to the idea. So that's what he's doing here. So what has gone to the ends of the earth is the gospel message. The message of God has gone to the ends of the earth. That message is spread to everybody. And yet you and I inherently know that's not true because we have been to remote places and we have shared the gospel and people are like, I've never heard that before. And we share. So what is happening in this particular passage? What is Paul doing at this point? And again, this is where it's absolutely critical for us to understand what Paul is doing in this passage, that he is not here necessarily defending the attributes of the gospel. He is here defending how the gospel makes all guilty for their rejection. We'll see that in a second. One more detail, let me point out before we look through this text. Or even you ask that question, how would I even, uh, how do I know that? The verse he quotes here in regards to how do we know what Paul is doing here or see this difference. The verse that Paul quotes here, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world may sound familiar to you because we read it in our scripture reading this morning in Psalm 19 in verse 4. This is a quote in Psalm 19 in verse 4 speaking in the first half of that psalm speaking of general revelation, speaking of creation. The sun coming out as a, as a bridegroom, as a strong man showing his power, and it's saying creation speaks forth the, of the works of God. And Paul uses this reference to general revelation to expose the hearing of the audience. Like I said, it, may, <clears throat> it appears theologically that he is messing up his theological categories. But when you understand what his purposes are, you see actually he is showing the stubbornness of the unbelieving heart and his guiltiness, his guilt. One more detail to point out. There's a word play that you wouldn't see in the English, but Paul brings out in the Greek text he uses this word akuo, which is to mean to hear. It's a verbal form to hear. But he uses it seven times in a couple different forms here. The first time, he uses it twice in verse 14. After asking the first question, how will they call in whom they have not believed? They then ask, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Akuo. And how will they hear without a preacher? Twice now, how are they here? They need to hear. 
Verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Now you read that and say, I don't see the word hearing there. But actually, it's there twice. First time, the word heed is this word, hupakuo. It's a magnified word, meaning they will not come under the hearing. They will not hear the truth and place themselves under it. That's the idea, translated as heed. But it is this idea, they have not all heeded. They have not all come under the hearing. And then the second time the word is used is, Lord, who has believed our report? That is the word, who has heard our report and received it, is the idea. Believed is a good translation, but the emphasis literally is those who accepted our message because when, we, when they heard it. Four times. Next time, the phrase is used is in verse 17, used twice, of course. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Two more times now, a kuo is used. And then lastly here in verse 18, surely they have never heard, have they? Building up to this case of hearing, this message has been made known, it has been brought out, it has been communicated, it has been evidence to all, they have heard. Message is proclaimed, it is announced, it is to be regularly testified to so those would hear and hearing believe. And believing is, is associated with hearing. To believe is to accept what you have heard and to place yourself up under it, to heed it. So the question will come out that one would say, clearly there are some out there who've never heard. The message never came to them. To which Paul turns again to the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. Turned back to the Greek Bible, the Greek Old Testament Bible, the Septuagint, and quotes Psalm 19 in verse 4 and says there, Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Actually, God's message has spread to all so that all are without excuse. Just to show you this, this is the idea of the doctrine of general revelation. You remember back in Romans chapter 1, Paul brings this out. So turn over to Romans chapter 1 and just point out to what Paul's understanding of this. What Paul is not saying is, The gospel that would lead to salvation is spread to all. What he has said is the message of God that makes all men accountable has spread to all. That is what he's saying. Back in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 and following, Paul brings this out, particularly in verses 18 through 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So when is he described here? The natural man, which God has revealed as wrath, but man is suppressing that knowledge, pushing against it. 
Suppressing it in ungodliness and unrighteousness is resisting the knowledge of God. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. God has made within man the natural longings and desires for God and for righteousness. As chapter 2 will go on and explain, God has written his law in the heart of man, so man knows morally right and wrong. God has made himself known to man naturally, that he creates within man this natural desire for God. Then he explains further, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature notice, have been clearly seen being understood through that which was made, and then here's the phrase, so that they are without excuse. General revelation revealing the divine attributes of God, revealing his eternal power and his divine nature, clearly evidence to all, spreads to all from the very beginning of creation so that all are without excuse. All have heard, all have seen, all can understand. It's revealed universally to all. Why, again, the psalmist says, day to day pours forth speech, and night to night knowledge. There are no words spoken, no voices heard, but that message is regularly being proclaimed. Back to Romans chapter 10, then. Paul grabs that idea, general revelation, and says, nobody could argue when they come to the throne room of God, I never heard. I was uh, ignorant. I, no one got to me. It, the church failed me. Your messengers failed me. They didn't get to me to get the message out to me. No, the divine attributes of God were evident all around. God was testifying to his marvelous power so that you would be without excuse. Everyone is under judgments because the knowledge of God is evident to all. This isn't the idea that someone can look at a star and believe upon a star and get saved. That's not the idea being taught here. The idea being taught here is simply God, one can look upon that star and know there is a God. He is powerful. I need to, be, I need to know this God. And in that knowledge, they would be under a desired, a drawing, I need to know. And it is then through the word of God that they would learn that God is holy and they are sinful, that they need to be reconciled to this God and they can be reconciled through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through the hearing of Christ, the word of Christ, that they would know and understand and be restored. But no one would be able to argue I am innocent because I didn't hear. No, universal condemnation because God is testifying every day, every hour, every minute, every second of his marvelous attributes and power. 
blind could hear, those with sight could see, any rational creature would begin to understand the testimony of the divine power and wisdom of God. Okay, so it's not a problem with the effectiveness of the gospel. It's not a problem of the reach of the gospel because the gospel because the testimony of general revelation have made all guilty, well, maybe one could escape because it's an evidence problem. There's just not an ev- enough evidence. Verse 19 and 20. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Gnosko is the word. It's the idea they didn't reason. They didn't have what they needed to reason through all this. They, they didn't have the facts. They didn't have the testimonies. They didn't have the details necessary for them to make a logical, rational decision to do the right thing. So it's a knowledge problem. They weren't just given all of the right facts. And then Paul quotes the prophets. Two prophets, Moses and Isaiah. Notice how he exposes them. For Moses says, I will make you you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not know me. No, actually, it is not a fact problem. Problem is something else. Saying, Pastor... How do you see that here? Well, notice what he does here. What is the, one of the greatest demonstrations of the glory, power of God? One of the, fact, tests that were given to prophets. How do you know a prophet was indeed a prophet sent from God? And the answer is that when a prophet prophesied, it came true. If it didn't come true, it's not from God. But if it came true, if it was fulfilled, this is from God. So for somebody to teach a message and hundreds of years later, it fulfills exactly as the one said, you know that prophet was of God because it wasn't of man, it wasn't of his work. And what Moses does here, saying to his particular audience right now, you don't think there's enough evidence of God and his power as he's ministering the gospel to a Jewish audience here who's been hostile to Christ, who's been resisting the gospel of God. You say, you don't think there's enough evidence? Well, how about this piece of evidence? Moses spoke and Moses said, you're going to rebel and you're going to be hostile to God and you're going to reject my ways and you're going to go after gods that are gods that you have not known and I didn't teach you of, gods that don't exist and you're going to spend yourself giving all of your possessions and your vitality to those gods and you're going to go after other gods and you're going to abandon me and then I'm going to judge you and I'm going to bring my judgment upon you and I'm going to use those nations to judge you and I'm going to use the wicked to punish you. I'm going to do all of this And then I'm going to turn to a nation that's not a nation and I'm going to use them to make you jealous. And I am going to take that nation that has no understanding and I'm going to redeem them and it's going to anger you. And that's exactly what happened. Now, is that enough evidence? 
of the power and the wisdom of God to carry about his marvelous work that hundreds of years before the time happened, God said exactly what was going to happen. And then right there on the spot, with all that evidence, they still reject. It's not an evidence problem. It's not, a not, it's not a problem. I didn't give you enough facts. I didn't give you enough details. I didn't support it in a way that you can logically understand. This is not a logic problem or a fact problem. It's a much deeper problem than that. That is why you reject. You shouldn't reject because the testimony of God has been clear through the prophets and apostles. You shouldn't reject because the evidence of God is evident all around you. You shouldn't reject because the facts are all there. But you still reject. You won't be able to use the excuse, I just didn't know. I didn't have enough detail. I didn't have enough of the facts. It didn't make sense to me. It's not a knowledge problem. It's a much deeper problem than that. So the man will stand and he will have no excuse. He can't say it's a God, your message wasn't helpful, or, or we didn't hear, or it wasn't enough knowledge. So then what's the problem? What's the real problem? And he gives it to us in verse 21. This is the comfort for us. Here's the real problem. Unbelief. He says, but he says, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I've poured out my love, I've poured out my favor, I've poured out my grace, I've poured out my kindness, I have lavished them with mercy and grace, and they still have stubbornly resisted and pushed against. Yeah, our message isn't received. It isn't because we messed it up. It isn't because we have the wrong message. It isn't because someone can't understand the words that are coming out of our mouth because we have no evidences or supports. No, there is disobedient and obstinate people hardened to the truth, hardened to the knowledge of God, hardened to the ways of God, hardened to right, the ways of righteousness, desiring to re replace God with themselves so they can live as they wish to live, but they live in opposition to God who regularly extends out his love. The imagery, again, is an imagery that you and I live in every moment when we faithfully respond to the truth and minister the gospel. We are demonstrating at that moment this very verse right here. This is God extending out his hand of grace. And every moment of rejection that happens right there isn't a problem. Well, maybe I messed it up. Maybe I didn't get the message right. Uh, maybe I, I've added too many facts and complex, made this too complex. That's why I always chuckle when somebody comes in the ministry and says, that pastor just preaches way overhead, too difficult, too hard to understand. And I want to point out some of the sweet old ladies in our church to say, but have you met such and such? Who hears the word of God and receives and fed and grows on it. It's not a problem with the message. Certainly, you better to be clearer 
And this is a problem with a disobedient and obstinate heart that pushes back against the love of God that is laid out and extended. Christian, that should comfort you. Not in the seeing of somebody resisting. That grieves us every time. It grieves us again as we started out in this, that someone would reject such good news to their own hurt that they would reject. That grieves us. But we should, on the other side, be comforted. I don't have to come up with a new way, a new message, a new idea. I can't imagine the tyranny that would come upon somebody who thinks, i got to keep adjusting this. Like the idea, well, if I'm going to reach people with a movie and I'm going to go and uh, use Beauty and the Beast where, you know, God is the beauty and we're the beast and we're going to tell this story and, and draw them in. I can't imagine the tyranny of that week in and week out having watched movies and not only exegete the scripture but then exegete these movies and try to piece it together to be creative enough to try to reach people and then they walk away not changed. What happened? Next movie. Hopeless despair. And I can't imagine putting the burden on myself as if I have to rescue everyone and everyone more reject than receive. Living under that kind of regular despair doesn't bring peace either. No, it's this understanding this. God commissions and sends his people out. We respond as an act of faith, believing his message, we go proclaim it. As we proclaim it, people hear it. As they hear it, God changes the heart. They believe and they call out upon God. And lives are transformed. We're not responsible for the fruit. God produces the fruit. I mean, we know that. One plants, another waters, but God causes the growth. We, as an act of faith, proclaim. And so when we receive rejection, when there is pushback, when there is rejection, Verse 21 is the answer for us. We know that it is a battle with a stubborn, disobedient, and obstinate heart that is warring with God and pushing against the things of God. Say, but there's so much rebellion, and there's so much hostility, so much rejection. Is there any hope in this world with all of this rejection? Yes. Romans chapter 11. The answer is, God is not done. He's still working and saving. And he's going to demonstrate that for us. But Christian, let me remind you of this. When you go out and you preach the gospel and somebody rejects and you're overwhelmed by that and you come dragging in on Sunday and you're like, Pastor, you better build me up here because I'm feeling run down that people haven't been receiving. Look around you. Look around God is working. God is saving. God is redeeming. He is still working. And the evidence of the fact that we are here hearing his message and we are going out and proclaiming God is still mightily working. I don't need somebody to turn for me to have faith and vindic be, you know, my faith vindicated. I see it vindicated every day in the lives of his people. 
and the marvelous transforming work that's taking place in our own hearts. And then we experience it every day as well when we are in obedience, yield ourselves by faith to the truth. We see ourselves growing and we're transformed day by day. We see the power of the gospel on display. Our faith, our faith grows and matures. So that my hope is, at the end of this message, when you leave, you're not beating yourself up, wishing for a particular kind of fruit, you're actually just rejoicing and being faithful to his message because he is at work around us. And that your conscience is freed up and isn't bound up by these false ideas that somehow puts the burden and problem on you as you got it wrong. You didn't get it wrong. Be faithful, believe his word, teach his message, and he figures out the results, not us. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. For this marvelous message. We're just thankful, Father, that you protect us from those who wish to burden our consciences and, and bind us to their own ideologies, trying to create fear within us and trying to create unbelief because they, we want to be faithful. Instead, we can just turn to your word and believe your message. And we're comforted by the truth. We're built up and edified by it so our faith is strong and stable and we're not tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine and we're not led into wasteful pursuits trying to reach masses that are stubbornly resistant. But in the day-to-day -day faithfulness and the day-to-day -day hearing of your truth and responding to it in obedience, that message has a powerful effect that moves forward, transforming from within and anytime we're doubting, anytime we're wondering, are we being effective, we just simply look back and see the testimony of your word and the testimony of your work in the hearts of your people and our hearts rejoice. Thankful, Father, for your message here and what you do to minister to us. And we pray as we are confident in these things that we would be confident in you and in your work and that you would use our love and devotion to you as a testimony of your marvelous grace. Indeed, we pray for the lost. We pray for our leaders. We pray for this world that desperately needs to be reconciled to you, that is growing more and more hostile to you and your ways and emboldened in their rebellion. May they be led to the emptiness of that. May their eyes be opened to see the, the foolishness of that display, the emptiness of it, so that they would be broken and turned and placed throw themselves upon you so that they would see your outstretched hand of mercy and grace and receive. Thank you again for rescuing us, for we too were once that people. Pray, Father, that as we leave this week, may we be emboldened to be faithful to all that you've called us to. It's in your name we pray. Amen.